We said we're going to be going through, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, through the book of Daniel as we look at uh, a vision for our purpose, for our mission in the world, or, and, and the relationship of us to the world around us. Now, when you read the book of Daniel, you think of several events. Most of what you think of is probably comes from the first five chapters of the book of Daniel, uh, because the last part of Daniel is a lot of his his visions and dreams, and we're going to go through that too because it's all very applicable to us. Uh, you think of the lion's den. That's probably the first thing you think of. Uh, maybe the second or one of the, one of the two first things that you think of is, is uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to talk about them. Uh, maybe you think of uh, the handwriting on the wall uh, at the end of at the end of chapter five, and uh, you know there might be a couple other events, but that, that's pretty much your vision of Daniel, right? That, that's what you think of, and it's all from the beginning, but we're going to eventually read the entire text uh, of Daniel. I was just going to kind of skip around, uh, but I, I thought it would be good to actually go through uh, the entire thing. Uh, this is a, a book of vision. It's a vision of perspective. Uh, and, and so I just kind of want to introduce that uh, this series of series is going to probably take us into May. Uh, uh, to, to understand uh, exactly uh, our connection to people. Um, because Daniel is that story. Daniel is a, a story of a man uh, connecting uh, with uh, the world around him in a new world. I uh, want to read the, uh, our text today. Uh, and Chris read one verse from it. We're going to get the surrounding text. Uh, so we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 1. It's uh, a little bit big to fit on the screen, so we'll have to do this the old-fashioned way. Daniel chapter 1. <clears throat> and we're going to be reading the first eight verses. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, and some of the king's descendants, and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was uh, no defect, but good-looking, gifted in wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand. They had the ability to serve in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision from the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three years of training for them, so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king. Now, from among these sons were of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the chief of the eunuchs gave these names. He gave Daniel Belteshazzar. To Hananiah he gave the name Shadrach. To Mishael he gave the name Meshach, and to Azariah he gave the name Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank, and therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. This is not a story of being vegetarian. You can rest assured. Feel free this afternoon to eat your burgers or do whatever you're going to do. This is a story of survival. This is uh, being taken from your home 
being forced to walk 550 miles. And they might even have a, a picture of this. I'm not sure. Yes, there you go. 550 miles across that landscape to your new home. This is a story about how people deal with being thrust into a completely new culture, an unknown situation against their will. This is the story of people's values coming into direct conflict with those who surround them, a different culture. And so we're going to be talking today, I think, about where we should start, about identity. And what I want to look at is uh, we see this conformity to Babylon, uh, and we're going to see this as we go through these verses, how Babylon wants to make them conform. And, and the methods that are used, and what we will see is that, that the methods that Babylon used to, to try to get people to conform to them and to change to them and to be, uh, become what Babylon wants. They're the same, really the same types of things that continue today, just as we've always said. It's a different technology. It's a different... Uh, it, it's, it looks different, maybe. But they're the same basic things that happen. And so we're going to look at just a couple of verses here and, and look at these things. The first thing, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 and 4... This is uh, the king commander Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the, he asked him to bring, uh, the, the, the king asked him to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family of the nobility, youth without blemish, good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And so there's this re-education uh, that has to take place. We have to remake you the way you think. You're going to go through this indoctrination period for three years until your way, the way you talk and the words that you use and the way you think conforms to us. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, that's not so different, is it? The world around us requires re-education. It requires us to say things the way they say it. That's not exclusive to, to just individuals. They're trying to do this on a legal level. There's a bill right now in California that would make it... It probably won't pass. If it did, it would be struck down by the courts, I am confident. That would make it illegal for preachers to say certain things about homosexuality or about anything, gender. Well, they have it up in Canada. Why, why wouldn't it happen here? We need to be re-educated. Because the Bible's a little old. Your culture's a little old. That's not sufficient. I mean, some things are okay, but, but you can't say certain things in our culture. You need to be re-educated until we find you acceptable. It's just a different thing, a different technology, a different manifestation, but it's all the same thing. Culture wants to re-educate you. That's how they control you. 
They are unwavering in their views. Just as Babylon was unwavering in their viewpoint. They're going to be willing to play chicken with you. And see if you'll be the one to blink. See if you'll be the one to say, well, maybe this... Maybe this is a little outdated. Maybe I wouldn't have worded it the way Paul would have worded it. Or maybe, maybe this thing isn't quite the way, you know, maybe that was just culture. That they're betting that you're going to blink. And that's what Babylon was doing. They had all the leverage. Babylon had all the leverage. And they were willing to bet that given enough time and given enough pressure, these young men would, would bend even a little bit, to the culture of Babylon. The origin of the world. Will you bend as you read Genesis 1 and 2? Will you be willing to bend that to fit what is going to be taught in every university, in every public school? Just a little bit. Will you try to find a way to harmonize that? Your social policy, your worldview, your ability to be public about your faith. They want you to vent, they want you to be re educated. The value of your priorities. Well, wealth is the most important thing. And you've got to go through us to get all these things. You've got to go through our education system to get wealth, which is the goal. And so in those education systems, you'll be taught what we want you to be taught. This is the world. This is the structure that they've established. This is Babylon. You live in Babylon. The only difference is you haven't had to walk 550 miles to get there. It's the only difference. They're not going to change, so the pressure is on you to at least compromise. And though they would prefer you completely abandon your position, but they'll be happy with a moral victory, or content temporarily with a, with a moral victory, if they can just move you. Because if they can move me, if they can just move me a little bit, they know that they can come back to that in the future, and move me again, and move me again. And they'll get me where they want me. So avoid the re-education. The next one is assimilation. In verse 5, it says, The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at that time that's when they would stand before the king. There was not just a requirement to adopt the behaviors or the, the education, but to adopt the behavior, the practices. Now, I want you to understand why they refused and why this was a requirement, this food and this wine. This, uh, some people think, well, this was just because, um, because it was pork. Well, that's probably a, a... But he references wine as well. 
Uh, wine was not forbidden to the Jews, uh, unless you were a Nazarite. So why, why, why did they say, well, that, we can't do that either? And if they had beef, why, why not say, well, we'll take, we'll, we'll just the pork stuff, we, we won't do that. Why, why the whole thing? It has to do with that guy. Um, his name is Bel Marduk, not to be confused with Marmaduke. Looks a little bit similar, but <clears throat> Bel Marduk was the chief god of, of Babylon. And they had lots, much like most places, but that was the chief one. And uh, uh, we don't understand, when, when we look at idol worship and, and things, uh, maybe we don't understand why people do the things or why they did or why, why is this so bad. Or, um, my, my mom went to Japan and they have a little God shelf. And, uh, and, and Katie said the same thing about going to one of... Uh, the lady she works for, and and, uh, and they have a little shrine. Uh, she's she's Hindu, um, and they they have a they have a shrine in there. So it's, it's all very similar. They put food out in front of it, and then later in the day they eat that. Like to me, it would be a, the way I think. Like your God wasn't even capable of eating his own food. Now you've got to eat it for him. Right? It's like when kids. You know, have have a little tea party with their petty bears, and they end up eating all the cookies. You know, <laughs> uh, your God can't even eat his own food. Why would you worship him? We don't understand what the concept of putting food before and then eating it means. See, they attributed success in everything to their God, and so so uh, food or or wine or anything that was placed before the king, or, or before the god, before the idol, they believed that the actual god, see if this sounds familiar, lived inside of the idol. Well, that's kind of interesting. God, god uses some of this symbolism, God living in us and us being a temple. We've heard that before. That doesn't now sound quite so foreign. And, and when they placed it before him, he blessed that God was really there and blessed it, and then they ate it. And so they've got these attributes now of God in them. Does that sound familiar? It's kind of like communion, if you think about it. And in a slightly different sense, maybe a step further than we would take it. But it's kind of along the same lines as that. And so uh, you would be attributing your spirituality of that religion, to the God through the food that you ate and your success and, and your ability to, to perform whatever tasks was therefore directly connected to the God you serve because of the food you ate. This is the connection. And so Daniel, and I assume these other men, says, uh, I can't eat that. Make a difference if it's a hamburger or, or whatever it is. I cannot attribute the things that I'm going to do in this land as I stand for God, the real God. I cannot sit here and let people think that that's because of a connection to a different God. So, no, he's not rude about it. He even asked permission. Now, I'm sure he was prepared 
to say, listen, I'm just not going to do it if he was denied permission. But he starts off next. Let's see if we can get along here. And uh, he says, test me. If I'm not successful, then we'll know the reason. If your God is so great, it will be obvious why. Because I don't have a connection to him. If I'm not successful, it's because I didn't. Right? So test me. And that's the importance of the idols. And so he was rejecting this assimilation. And that's what the world does to us. The world, the world wants us to have any successes we have be attributed to the things that they hold as important. The standards they have are the standards we are supposed to accept. And we have to look at that and compare and say, no, I'm not going to do it. This is not... This is not compatible. God is my success. The last one that we're going to look at, Daniel chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. These are the, the men that were brought back of the tribe of Judah. And the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. I've always found it interesting that, and maybe just because it's a little bit more poetic to say, but we always call the other three by their Babylonian names, but Daniel we retain. Uh, that's kind of funny. Uh, maybe because just they kind of rhyme and have better meter. I don't know. But um, <clears throat> but the last one is association. Babylon, King of Babylon recognizes that he has to get them to reassociate. This whole sermon is about identity. He has to change their identity. Back then, maybe more so than now, the name that you are called by formed your identity. Often they were attributes. They weren't just... Now we just make up names. You know, we just throw vowels and consonants at a... You know, or we'll take a name and misspell it or whatever. So names don't have quite the same value for many people. Some people still do. But names were often selected because of an attribute that, that the parents liked. Daniel, his name meant God's judge, or judge of God. He became Belteshazzar. We talked about uh, Bel Dagon. Bel is the Babylonian word. It's similar to the word El. Just a different definition of God. It means God's prince, but it's not just any God. It's a pagan God. And so Daniel 
Babylon says, no, Daniel, you can't associate with your God through your name anymore. We're going to try to re-identify you. You're going you're to identify every day people are going to call you after our God. Well, <clears throat> Hananiah means Jehovah favors. Well, Dan, Hananiah, you're going to become Shadrach. Your name is going to mean the command of Aku. Aku is a moon god. Every day you're going to hear Aku every time you're called. Pagan god, pagan god, pagan god. We're going to re-identify. Mishael means comes from God. He becomes Meshach, which means belonging to the goddess Shach or Shishak. You don't come from God, you belong to Shishak. Azariah means Jehovah helps. He became Abednego, which means the servant of Nego, which is Venus in Babylon. You see, every connection to God had to be removed. And we want to reassign you to the system that we have. And we want you to, to associate every day and hear that every day and every day all the connections, your new connections that we think you should have. Does that sound familiar? Um, <clears throat> our second year in, in Ukraine, we were trying to organize the, uh, the church into an official organization. We were, we were big enough to meet the requirements and, and we wanted we were thinking about getting property and, and doing things like that and so we had to be an official organiza an organization. So we had to draw up um, all these... Oh, what a process that was. If you hate bureaucracy, move to Ukraine. You will come back and love bureaucracy. So we took it to a lawyer and... Uh, she drew up the documents and we went around and did everything. So then we had to take it to the capital of our region. And then they stamp it and do whatever, which was another process. He sent it back. He looked at it and sent it back. Well, Ukraine has the official language of Ukrainian, but it had very recently been. And our lawyer didn't know Ukrainian. Like, you're Ukrainian. How do you not know your own language? Well, there's a reason that Ukrainians didn't really know Ukrainian, because uh, the Soviet Union didn't want each little state, Poland or whatever, now the further away you were from Moscow, it's a little bit easier to, to resist, but, but they wanted people to um, identify as Soviet. And so all the individual countries that made it up were required to learn Russian. And so the native language was not just an additional thing. They were actually forbidden to speak their native language. Re-identify. Re-identify. Re-educate. Conform. But re-identify. And so they're still left with that today. Ukrainians that don't speak Ukrainian. Yeah. This same thing happens around us. Re-identify. So 
So we want to talk about the resistance that Daniel offers. And we're going to talk about just a couple of things. Well, first of all, I want to talk about a banner. What do you mean a banner? Why do people in the military, why do we run with a flag? You ever wonder about that? That's got to be the stupidest thing. And, and not just run with a flag. I mean, here's a guy, he can't have hold a weapon. You just run with a flag. Boom, he gets shot. Yeah. Why? And they, and they would aim for the guy with the flag. And he was important. You know, he's got no gun. He's not dangerous. What is he going to do when he gets up to you? Hit you with the flag? Why? But they knocked that guy down. They wanted that guy down. And someone drops his gun and picks up the flag and runs with it. Why? A banner is important. It rallies people around something. It gives them courage. I don't know why or how, but a banner is extremely important. There is clearly an opposition to to something that we hold to be fundamentally true. And Satan is not the only one who realizes the key to victory is identity. God realizes this as well. So God has throughout time given people a banner. Think about how many times God changed names. Abram. No, Abraham. No, Jacob. You're going to call it Israel. And he does this again and again and again. He gives them an identity. I don't know what all the original names meant and why this and why that and why he wants this name. But God says identity is important. You need to rethink your identity. So in Acts 11.26, this is not just an Old Testament thing that he's done. He says, when he found to him, he brought him to Antioch. This is Paul. And so for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is not just the accidental name that people call. You'll hear that every once in a while. This word called is only used a few times in the Bible. And, and it's a word that means to be officially named something or officially titled as something. They were first called Christians. God waited till this moment in time to give people a name, and I think I know why. Uh, it was the first church where there were both Jews and Gentiles together. And God waits till this moment to say, now I'm going to call you Christians. No one has more access to this name than the other. This is the name that I want you to be called by. I want you to identify as God being, as Christ being in you. You're a temple. You see this association, this identity that God wants us to have. This is my name. He's given us customs to differentiate us from different people. In the Old Testament, he used circumcision as a landmark, sort of. You're different. Here's some different food traditions. Here's some different things. Here's some ways that you can think of yourself as being different. In the New Testament, he's given us baptism as a moment in time to think of and separate ourselves from what we were to what we are now with this new name. He gives us communion to to remember weekly this connection to what we have and how we are supposed to be different. God is playing the opposite side from Satan. 
Satan wants you to re-identify. And God says, I know he's going to try to get you to re-identify. So I'm giving you these things to keep your identity. To keep your association. But I want to talk about the key, what I believe was the key to Daniel's success. Daniel purposed in his heart. This was not an easy thing. We read and we'll read later that the, the guy wasn't so keen on this proposal. He's like, this is my life if I don't carry out the king's orders. Just, just bear with me, Daniel says. Just, just a little bit and see if it works. Give me a couple weeks just to see. Just a trial. The king won't know. Just give us a couple weeks and see if it's working. But it says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. I do not believe this happened, this purpose happened as he walked into the king's room or before the eunuch or whatever. And Daniel's a pretty smart guy. We know that because they were collecting pretty smart guys. That was the purpose. I think on that 550-mile journey, he was thinking about what he was going to do. I think he leaves Jerusalem thinking about what he's going to do when he gets there. He knows these people are famous for who they are. He knows this before he leaves his house where he's going. And I believe it's only because he purposed in his heart from that moment, and he's practicing these situations, they're going to ask me to do this, or maybe this. Maybe he doesn't know the exact situation, but he knows at some point he's going to be asked or required to do what he doesn't think he should do. And he goes, I have purpose in my heart. So when he gets to the moment, he's already gone through it. That, I believe, is the key to a success. The moment reveals the preparation. David wrote it a little bit differently. He says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Some of your versions might say it differently. When will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of my heart within my house. Victory in the situation comes before you leave your house. Daniel could not have had success unless he had already worked himself through all these moments. Again, not specifically. You can't envision everything that's going to happen to you. But you know where you go. You know what the people are like at work. You know what the teachers are going to say at school. You know what your 
whatever the situation where you are, you know those people or something similar. And if we wait till we're in the moment, we make the wrong decisions. That's just what we do. These are these are the keys, and so we're going to close. And I'm going to give you one, just to sum up this initial sermon, really, in this series, <coughs> is to practice success. Practice success. Practice it, and we talked about focusing last week. Uh, athletes do this a lot of times. They they envision. Uh, it was a. We talked about free throws, and I remember a different athlete. I don't. I can't remember the one, but they said they would shoot free throws in their mind. They would just picture themselves shooting them. Whatever the thing is doing, they they they'd picture. The play happened, and then when they had it, it was like muscle memory. It, it worked better when they pictured it. <clears throat> we have to picture ourselves making the right thing and, and saying, This is going to happen. Steal yourself for it over and over again. I know I'm going to be asked to say this thing, I know I'm going to be asked to do this thing. Practice success here. And it will become visible eventually.